So you're sick. What's wrong with you this week? What's wrong with me this week? Nice. <laughs> no, just my head hurts and, you know, like joint aches. It's fine. It could oh. be some depression in there too. Who knows? And Please. plus, you know, look, we've got the, the, the storm of the century on the horizon on the way, right? Like two big dumps of snow. So, you know, even my, my, uh, the pins where my operations were are aching. <laughs> well, at least we have great snow. friends and, and great supporters, including Schubert Club. Since 1882, Schubert Club has been creating inspiring musical experiences in the Twin Cities. More on them at Schubert.org and on more on their uh, upcoming programming in a bit. Also, huge thanks to Salestina. Salestina is classical music's wingman. By day, they're world-class performers and studio musicians who've played on your favorite films. By night, they're on a mission to broaden the definition of what classical music was, is, and can be. More on them at Salestina.org. Org and more on some of their upcoming programming here in a bit. But yes, you're <coughs> that's right, Scott. See, here I am. Now coughing. you're coughing. <laughs> <laughs> so record, we're recording this uh, remote tonight. So please forgive any latencies or, or anything like that. But uh, a few weeks ago, Scott, you asked me about, you know, some of my favorite white soul artists. I'm not <laughs> sure how that conversation came up. And it feels weird to be talking about that during Black History Month. No, I asked you who your Kenny Rogers was. Oh, I see. We'll, we'll give people some context about that. What, what does it mean for you to ask me who is my Kenny Rogers? Well, I was thinking about that bar that you and Dell like to go to that has a wall of famous black folks who have passed. Yep. Shout out to Papa Legba in St. Paul, black owned bar. And there's one white man, Kenny Rogers. And I wanted <laughs> to know who your Kenny Rogers was. Like, who would you put up? Well, first of all, Kenny Rogers is on the wall, you know, for me because of this tune. Baby, when I met you, there was peace unknown. I set out to get you with a fine tooth calm. I was soft inside. There was something going on. thing about it scott is that it's so effortless on his part he is he's having an easy time sounding <laughs> both cold. of them well, and all they have to do is just stand there there's no choreography they might sway <laughs> a little bit and, but, and yeah and we are in it so when we talk <laughs> about the kenny Rogerses of, of music <laughs> i think really what we're getting to are artists who happen to be white <laughs> who have really successfully and authentically and organically really taken on that soulful aesthetic just the, the power of music just to get us feeling something and not feeling sadness or maybe not even feeling like we're in a party mood, but just feeling that mm, that that mm. black, just ugly mm. face, you know, that we make. <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> no, like that ugly church face. Oh, no. That, that's that, that's that's what we talk about when we offer these Kenny Rogers awards. So, mm -hmm. so and, and thinking about that over the past couple of weeks, you got me repeating a tune just on my own in the shower, in the car. And I've been listening to it and singing it so much. I figured that I would bring it here to Triloquy. Don't you cry. Cause you'll be in my 
Can you, <laughs> mm. can you understand why that that performance would get the Kenny Rogers Award for me? Do you not hear the soulfulness in you the have spirit to, of that tune? You would have to kind of peel him off the ceiling. <laughs> he was up in the rafters when he hit that note. <laughs> and you said that that was in Tarzan. I, I kind of forgot about that film. Yeah, the, most of that soundtrack I wasn't really attracted to, at least at the time. I'm going to have to revisit the whole soundtrack, huh. but just randomly stumbling back upon that tune <laughs> has yeah. been i've been answering for myself you know who are other artists who get the kenny rogers award when you think about the white soul brothers from <laughs> in, mm. in your musical repertoire who do you who, who who comes to mind uh there's so many over the years you've got the righteous brothers there's average white band tom jones bobby caldwell um but for me uh it's a man who will never give you up never let you down, never going to run around <laughs> and hurt you. It probably should be called the Rick Astley Award, not the <laughs> Kenny right. Rogers Award, because he had the footwork too. He, he, and he had the dance steps as well. If you could do the white man overbite on the dance floor to that, you were, <laughs> you were sought after. Of course, everyone knows the most famous tune. Is, is there another one that you think it would be cool to highlight from him? I do, because in 1991, he kind of had um, like a, a mini comeback and he got he had a new haircut, uh, longer hairstyle. Mm -hmm. And uh, he teamed up with Andre Crouch and the Andre Crouch Choir for a piece called Cry for Help. And for me, that just showed, yeah, I can give you the song that you dance at the wedding receptions to, you know, I can give you that. But also here is. Uh, a, a genuine from the heart piece of soul that was really just emblematic of the 90s. She's taken my time, convinced me she's fine, but when she leaves, I'm not so sure. It's always the same. What, what is there to be said? I mean, he's, <laughs> he's definitely a prime recipient of the Kenny Rogers <laughs> Award. You know, I presented at the um, Minnesota Music Educators Association conference last Friday. Uh, basically, they asked me to tie the idea of musical activism to music education. And one of the things that I was really talking about, I talk about it in many contexts, was that affirmation that we got way back when from Antonin Dvorak when he came over here talking about Negro melodies as mm -hmm. the foundation of a, a great American school of music. You know, obviously the orchestral systems did not follow that, but performances like this one, especially, you know, this, this tune from Rick really showed that the spirit of American music really is the black aesthetic and the black approach, even as showcased by non-black artists. I think that's a really strong argument for what Dvorak said, even all the way up to today, the sort of work we're, we're trying to do here. You know, what's funny is uh, Rick Astley's a Brit. Really? Really? Yep. You keep saying he's, you know, he's representing, you know, uh, American soul music. He's British. 
Well, I mean, and, and we, we, we see that in other artists. We have Adele who is really digging into that in, in her oh, own. Good point. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and many other artists. But, you know, when, when you asked me this question of the, the Kenny Rogers Award, again, a, a few weeks ago, I did mention Dolly Parton, but there was mm-hmm. another artist I mentioned uh, who is uh, Lady Gaga. And one of the reasons why she has just always been at the top for me, because I really feel like she understands that American idiom, that Black sound and how it can be realized uh, through other voices. Um, and and just the the, the power of, of spreading that aesthetic. Uh, so th- today, as we're recording this, is my and Dell's six year anniversary. And yeah, uh, congrats. And and as I think back on the first day we met, I can't help but to remember the fact that I put on Instagram on my way to work uh, at the at the radio station uh, a, a Lady Gaga track. Just another way to prove I love. Think back to that moment. I was basically thinking about the fact. Well, it's just another day. I know I have a date this evening, but you know, we'll 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 see. We'll see what happens. And now, you know, six years later, I recognize that it wasn't just another day. But thinking about that day always makes me praise and honor this tune by Lady Gaga that I think really beautifully encapsulates exactly what we're talking about, the beauty of this Black musical aesthetic and the way that even white artists can exemplify that. We both know I could learn a thing or two about behaving, but I love you and after all, it's just another day. Just another day. Isn't it interesting how just another day sometimes isn't just another day? I don't know. I always think about that every anniversary of ours, thanks to thanks to that tune. You always say that the two of you do a check-in, like, okay, are we going to do this another year? Like another ticket for the ride? Yep. Did you do that this year? <laughs> another ticket for the ride, you say. Yes, we did do that this year. And uh we're 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 gonna work on seven, and we're working on work on eight, nine, ten, eleven, all of that. But congratulations to you both. Thank you. But but to take it away from you know about me and Dell, all what this conversation basically takes me to is imagining an ecosystem where we have the room to honor all music equally, all artists equally, in celebration of the cross-cultural differences. And in celebrating those cross-cultural differences, understanding where our aesthetics come from, what has fueled them, and how we can continue to honor those people, in this case, Black aesthetics. But there's so many intersections where that applies. Decolonizing classical music in the United States will help us get there, creating an ecosystem where we know who we are, celebrating our differences, as I mentioned, and honoring the history and the present of the music that makes us feel, makes us dance, make us re- makes us remember, helps empower us. 
that's the stuff of music. That's the power that the art form has and what we're trying to open up here on the Triloquy podcast. So let's Bring it. go ahead and jump into this opus. Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, recorded remotely this week. Thanks to technology. Thank you for everyone for uh, tuning in and joining us once again. To returning listeners, thank you so much for continuing to return and to offer your uh, contributions and support. We could not do this show without you. Thank you so much. If this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a show that takes the idea, the concept of classical music, and we expand it to include far more aesthetics, far more compositions, and far more dialogues, all to the goal of decolonizing the phrase classical music. For more information on Triloquy, to check out past opuses, to learn a little bit about some of the folks who helped make it possible, and to contribute, visit our website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot O-R-G. In addition to your support, uh, Triloquy is made possible by Schubert Club. Coming up on March 1st, Schubert Club is presenting Persia to Iberia, Bridget Kibbe on harp, Masa Badat uh, on vocals, and John Hatfield on percussion. Schubert Club's 2022-23 featured artist uh, Bridget Kibbe uses the concert harp as her musical passport to explore the irrevocable effects of the Islamic golden era in her newest project titled Persia to Iberia. So you can learn more about that and find your tickets over at schubert.org. Hope y'all will go support if you're here in the uh, Minnesota area. Um, also, again, a shout out and thanks to Salestina presenting our March 24th and 25th, their resident artist showcase featuring Meredith and Yoshi. It says here, when your resident artists are this good, you owe it to everyone to shine a giant spotlight on them once in a while and a reception will follow. This is happening on March 24th at 8 p.m. Pacific time at the Eddie at the Broad Stage and March 25th at 8 p.m. Pacific time at Barrett Hall and also live streamed there. So even if you aren't on the West Coast, you have an opportunity to check that out. You can find more and uh, get your tickets at salestina.org. Garrett Schumann returns to the Triloquy podcast this week in the third movement alongside Joe McCarty all the way from England and Afro Brits on the uh, Triloquy (laughs) podcast this week in the third movement to share a little bit um, about some of the work that they're doing. Excited to uh, share that with y'all. In the Triloquy movement, I'm going to talk a little bit about Black-Jewish relations. Uh, (laughs) uh, I I, I only giggle because, you know, we've been going through some things culturally, and it's time for that conversation. So I'll speak to uh, one of the upcoming projects I have and how it relates to that. Uh, Some great music in the second movement, but for now, we are jumping into movement one. All right, Scott, I want to go ahead and jump right on in (laughs) this week. Mm. Um, with this article that uh, I'm assuming, well, I'm not going to assume what accidental you're going to give this. How about I ask you? It's a flat, flatty, flat, flat. How many flats can you have on a score? <laughs> title of this one is The Agony of Contemporary Classical Music. I mean, just the title. Just the title. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure how this came up. I'm not sure what keywords I use. I'm not sure uh, what... Um, thread I stumbled down, but nevertheless, I did land in the uh, Association of Mature American Citizens. Uh, 
Maybe the algorithms assume that that's your bag. (laughs) (laughs) I hope not. AMAC.US. That's the uh, web address for the agony of contemporary classics, uh, of contemporary classical music. Okay, I disagree from the first sentence here. It says, as the audience for classical music keeps shrinking, the music that contemporary composers are producing, typically with the support of grants from government or private foundations, is less and less listenable. Just shade upon shade upon shade, as is the case with so many other aspects of our lives. The reason why we we may lie in part with the politicization politicization of what was formerly an autonomous realm of civilized pleasure and spiritual elevation. And that seems to be the core of uh, the writer's complaint, the idea that new music is too political, it's too personal, the composers are sharing too much about who they are in this music. And, you know, may, maybe I, maybe my music degrees and, and career in the field uh, gave me a, an incorrect perspective. But my idea was that no matter who you're talking about, contemporary or historical, that's the point of what these composers were talking about. What's mm-hmm. Beethoven's fifth other than him dealing with his going deaf? What's Beethoven's sixth other than his love for walking through nature and 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 pastoral scenes? I mean, we can uh, we can talk about that when it comes to Shostakovich and the government and his feeling about sure. Stalin as well, as well as Prokofiev. I don't know. It, from my perspective, Scott, it seems like this idea of of, of, a personal uh, sort of representation of the world reactions to what's going on, even just personal feelings. That's what this art form has always been about. Yeah, I don't know what he's talking about. It was right around Beethoven's era where it even the, the sort of music that was being composed at the time even influenced the way that concert halls were designed and built. Yeah. You know, that's where you had seating and you're going to sit down so that you can, you know, have these big ideas just sort of wash over you. Um, he even points out here in the second graph, uh, going to a book by Tom Wolf. Mm. The book's thesis is that works of contemporary, typically abstract art posted on museum walls weren't really art at all. As evidence of this, he pointed to the several paragraphs of explanation composed by curators designed to explain what the artist was trying to say through the work. So here he is advocating against program notes, I'm guessing. It sounds like it, or basically saying if something needs so deep of an uh, explanation, it's not really art. But I mean, that's the purpose of art. It's layers. It's interpretation. Not everything is face value like the like I don't know the the funny column in the newspaper is that what the writer would 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 rather spend his time with you know <laughs> probably I, I want to uh, skip down in this article. Um, it says, these thoughts are occasioned by a classical concert I recently attended by a respectable <laughs> local orchestra. At the core of the concert, and the reason my wife and I attended, was a performance of one of the greatest works of the Romantic movement, the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto, featuring the brilliant young soloist William Hagen. All right, shout out to William Hagen, who I uh, have performed with. But Scott, it seems like the writer doesn't really understand what is behind the competitions of Tchaikovsky. I mean, uh, a a quick Google search will will just show you that even this specific piece had direct ties to not only his homosexuality, but the pain that he was feeling having to hide it. He wanted Mm -hmm. to dedicate that 
concerto uh, to one of his lovers, at least uh, present or past, but was afraid of what the uh, implications of that would be. Anyway, all of that to say, writers like this, it's probably not a stretch to think that they wouldn't so much celebrate a work about being gay if it were written in the 21st century. But, you know, not in a, not even in a so roundabout way, that's what this piece of music is. It just sounds like there's, again, a lack of understanding of what the actual tradition of this thing called classical music is. I agree with you 100%. Uh, these thoughts are occasioned by a classical concert I recently attended. That's the respective goal orchestra one, right? Right. Um, but the quote above it that I wanted to highlight was um, the chamber orchestra that he went to hear play Aaron J. Kernis and his daughter was playing uh, in the concert. Um, he he seemed to be dismayed that she had to shake a a, a Coke can full of sand. Right. In a piece uh, that spoke about the uh, the 1991 Gulf War, which exactly. is something that I don't really know about. I can't tell you anything about the Gulf War. So, you know, damn, if a composer wants to help teach us or or, or give us light on this contemporary history, you know, but that this is a place of, of complaint as far as and, this writer is concerned. Right. And it is a chance to basically get into the shoes of the person that's trying to tell the story. Uh, for example, in the second movement, I'm bringing in an Anthony Davis piece that was commissioned because of the story behind it. And uh, I don't, do, do you agree with that, that if you have to explain some piece of art, then you've failed from the get? No, and it, it really brings up a question that I think is very relevant to your line of work. You, know, you, you make a living creating context around pieces of music. It's not just that people turn on the radio and hear these sounds that they have to interpret for themselves. There are hosts there to offer a little something more. Even just squarely from where you exist in the classical music industry, I wonder if you can speak to why context is necessary, not even just something nice to have, but why is the radio break a vital part of listening to music, at least from your perspective? Uh, it adds dimension. Uh, it uh, helps to provide understanding. And I think that if you tell the story correctly, then the listener arrives at conclusions on their own. Right. You know, and, and I think that if you do it really artfully, you don't have to uh, put yourself in the center of it and look like you're taking a position. You just say, look, this is the conversation that's happening now. And we, we know that it's surrounding um, sexism and racism for the most part. So if you just set it up as these are the tools and the problems that we're working with right now, and uh, they can arrive at their own decision. And, you know, it's one thing to name Aaron J. Kernis. I think Aaron has had some pretty good success in the in the field, you know, is uh, mm -hmm. in academia teaches people. But I think attacking a composer whose identity and background in the genre is extremely marginal and marginalized, that's just punching down. I I didn't appreciate the way in which Rena Esmail's name was was being said in this article, mm -hmm. and, and we've shared her music before. I've heard her music live. It definitely offers a different spin on this idea of of so called classical music. I just don't I, I don't think it's fair to pretend like these composers are just ideas. These are human beings that you know we're we're talking about and and who this writer is shitting on here. And I basically think that he is saying, uh, we don't want to hear about your pain or your problems. Problems, You're up there to entertain us. That is uh, upholding the elitism uh, that 
just should not exist when we're talking about it. Um, to ignore a piece of music about the Me Too movement that's saying, I don't want to hear your story. If you're trying to tell somebody, I don't want to hear a piece of music on your impression of uh, uh, Desert Storm or your reaction to being arrested, I, I got a problem with it. That's basic, That's That's suppression. And I, I don't understand how people don't see it as such. And quite honestly, it's hard for me to be too critical about this writer because he obviously isn't actually steeped in the genre of, of this thing or its history. I think he's more familiar with the status quo that surrounds it. So, you know, that's how those uh, quotes about Tchaikovsky come up because mm. th there's just no understanding of the context. You know, this isn't directly related. I know last year, maybe around this time last year, we talked about, uh, I don't, do you remember us talking about classic FM and the social media bumpers they were putting out with that Nina Simone quote about how yep. Bach made her fall in love with yep. uh, classical, you know, so I, I'm, I'm seeing that go back around and the, the comments are shedding some truth, you know, that I'm thankful for, but that that context is so important to put Nina Simone on the screen and and uh, with a quote of how Bach made her fall in love with classical music. You know, it's, it's like looking at a mountain range through a straw, like it's yep. just not really fair to to do that. And I think about the same thing here to talk about how the aesthetic of Tchaikovsky is what you came to a concert to hear and what you think the orchestral experience should broadly be that's erasing the context of that piece of music and i feel like if he if this writer actually understood the history even of just that composer and that piece of music he would understand how contradictory he's he's being you know what did you think about the the last paragraph here i want to uh, touch on the last sentence of the last paragraph he's talking about his daughter who agree uh, uh graduated with a degree in uh, she's a musicologist and harpsichordist and he writes neither her performances nor her scholarship to my knowledge have included any political or personal rants despite the fact that she has strongly held opinions about politics that often differ from my own well you know i, I think that tells us how <laughs> she feels about articles like this and no <laughs> shade at all i promise <laughs> no shade but someone whose work is steeped in the harpsichord has a slightly different <laughs> okay people who are writing new music and and, who are, <laughs> and putting ideas on the stage that relate to today i think there are some great use of harpsichord harpsichord was on my master's recital there's some contemporary music <laughs> that includes harpsichord there's harpsichord on the jackson five i'm listing these things off just to reiterate i'm not hating on the harpsichord but there is something there about having a career that is steeped in musicology with that as your primary instrument and the career that people like Aaron J. Kernis and Rena S. Mail have, the mission that they have to platform their, their creativity, you know, their desire to write orchestral music as a means of connecting the art form to today. That, 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 that's all I'm saying there. She um, also <laughs> makes the distinction that many of today's composers fail to recognize between the spheres of serious musical composition and those of incoherent political and personal grievance. Do you think that's true? Do you think that people are are failing to see that? Because the Met Opera put up a thirty uh, million, a, a, a very no. I was going to talk about uh, Terrence Blanchard's oh, sure. uh, production uh, was one of their best sellers. Yeah, and yeah. and and that I'll dealt think. with yes, and that dealt with some very touchy subject matter. Oh yeah, uh, and so 
uh, and if that is selling out, uh, I, I don't get it. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't understand how, I don't understand how the, the article even makes sense. I don't. There is one thing in this article as we're wrapping up here that I do appreciate. I appreciate the writer naming the people who are in power, which are rich donors. We mm. love to pretend as orchestral musicians, sometimes as arts administrators, that you know we have the power, we're the change, representation matters. And while all of that's true, the industrial complex that hides within the classical music industry is very much there. And it's been bothering me more and more every day, the idea that if you have 10, 15, $20 million dollars, you can pull the strings. You can you can say certain things, get certain things on stage. And the dance that surrounds that is courting these high dollar funders toward, you know, the the uh, staging of new music, the staging of the, the status quo. I think that's named here and something that uh, we have to just really acknowledge more and more as we have this conversation. I really honor public radio's dedication for the most part to con- uh, community focused contributions. But at the end of the day, orchestras don't have enough of the community to do that work. So we're maintaining this ecosystem of rich donors really being the center of attention and what they care about or what they don't care about being the lay of the land when it comes to orchestral music. So what happens when the major donors uh, die off? I guess there will be new donors, but, you know, I think we're seeing that the, and, and maybe, you know, there's some generational wealth things that go on. I don't, I don't know what happened in all of these high, high dollar spaces. But yeah, when I think about the next generation of donors, I'm thinking about a lot of these pop artists, some of the, um, some of the athletes, some of these techie people or, or uh, social media people who have made it one way or another. I don't understand how this back to basics approach, this, you know, reframing the orchestral experience as what it should be, as at least according to this writer. I don't understand how that will help the genre culturally, no. um, but maybe it will save it financially. But, you know, it'll be there and it'll be the same old crowd, the, the same old gray haired, blue haired audience. So, mm. I don't know. I, I, I guess we'll see. So uh, thoughts and prayers uh, to this writer. Um, and uh, we're going to transition out of this uh, with uh, a little music that was actually mentioned here. So the writer uh, complained about a piece of music by Rena Esmail, one called Black Iris. It's featured on the Project W album uh, put out by the Chicago Sinfonietta. Here's a little of it to uh, get us to our next accidental. Can you talk a little bit about how your ears have shifted over the course of your career in classical music? Maybe once upon a time, I would have listened to that and really thought, oh, wow, this is 
fresh or contemporary, you know, all, all of those things. But honestly, if I'm just really putting my thoughts and ideas on the table, that's sort of the central aesthetic that I think about, an aesthetic that's important and an aesthetic that's a jumping off point. I don't even really hear that and hear today in the way that I think we could. Of course, it's a great piece of music. I guess the point I'm trying to make is that this is not left field, crunchy, just out there orchestral music. I sort of see this as middle of the road. Uh, I definitely think that over years of uh, 30 years of playing this music over the year, sure, my tastes have changed because I've played the canon for so long that when something like that comes up, like like uh, Esmail's piece that you just played, it makes my head turn. Yeah, you know that's that becomes more interesting because it's not what my ears have been trained to. And we know that musicians get bored. We know that they get bored with the repertoire. And you put a contemporary quote unquote contemporary piece up like that. It's not like they're up there frowning as they play, like they hate it, you know, no, they're up there enjoying the challenge. You know, this is, it's, it's like, um, it's like watching a, an athlete or, a uh, somebody do their craft to the height of their ability. I love it. And, you know, not to be more divisive, <laughs> that, that, is, that is useful. I don't want to point any fingers at the so-called good guys, you know, speaking of the musicians and the people who do advocate for new music. But who else, Scott, is standing up for these composers? Like, it's one thing for me to disagree with what that writer was talking about, but it was really pinching a nerve for me to see the way that he was talking about Rena Esmail's music and and her autonomy as a as a composer. Yeah. Triloquy can't be the only entity out here willing to name the existence of this hate. I, I mentioned my MMEA presentation. You know, that's one of the main things that I tell college uh, students when I present at universities. We have to understand that opposition to a shift of the status quo of classical music is real. It may yeah. not be as loud or it may not exist on social media or, or in, the, uh, in the same arenas that changemakers live in and exist in. But it is out there and there have to be people like us willing to just step up and name just the problematic nature of the way that these composers are being referred to. Maybe some people would see it as a stretch, but I see that as an example of this white supremacy, that whiteness we were talking about last week, this idea of it just being inconceivable to call some of these historical composers racist or uh, misogynist mm -hmm. or, mm -hmm. or those things, you know, that that's not fair for us to say that. But we have women, uh, living women composers who are out here today. And you have these these writers saying these awful things and we're supposed to say nothing back. We're not supposed right. to have any sort of discourse. We're supposed to be neutral or 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 uh, what do you call me? Uh, diplomatic or, <laughs> or, or well, whatever. a little bit more so. I, I don't I don't I, I disagree with that. I think there just has to be more energy on actually engaging the conversation as it exists. Not that we have to be the savior for these composers, but everyone wants a little bit of backup. So I'm here to give some backup. Damn it. I'll, uh, I'll end there. <laughs> all I want to say is that these sorts of articles are what we're up against. These sorts of things are being shared through email, through social media. They spread around. 
and that that's what we're up against that's what we're fighting back against all right well uh we're moving on to our second accidental this week i'm going to give this one a sharp mm. um and it comes from yesmagazine.org this article actually came out back in 2020 but i think it's a, a good one to uh uh return to my my friend my my uh my fellow buddha nancy sent this to me so shout out to nancy the title of it is how black classical musicians are creating community i'll read a little bit of it here music has been significant for many during covid 19 isolation and in these same months black musicians have amplified the momentum of the black lives matter movement while pop or hip-hop music are genres whose agility and responsiveness make them natural sites for popular commentary. This threatens to neglect other arenas of music making. I'm, you're going to talk more about uh, Anthony Davis's You Have the Right to Remain Silent in the second movement, but I wonder if you could just speak to uh, the point that's being made in the opening of this article, how all of the things of 2020 brought black classical music and, and classical music activism to the front in a way that it wasn't previously. It, it definitely pulled the curtain back on everything that was hidden. That's for sure. Uh, I certainly felt it. I know that my friends and, and colleagues in the industry felt it for sure. It says here in this article, a study commissioned by Orchestras Canada about orchestra's relationship to indigenous peoples and people of color published in 2018 found that systemic inequity and coloniality underpinning Canadian classical music creates hierarchies, reinforcing racism and cultural appropriation. I'm mm -hmm. bringing that up because throughout this article, it seems like in Canada, and you know, I, I interviewed um, uh, an activist in, in Canada who's going to be featured later on this season. But it seems like the concept of colonization, coloniality, as it's it's named here, mm -hmm. must be more broadly understood. There, you know, we, we don't have a breakdown of that word or of that concept here. It's just kind of used. D does does that not stick out to you in any way? It would seem that their commitment to music of indigenous peoples should be deeper. Uh, they they certainly have a, a higher population of it right now. It just seems like just the the concept of mm -hmm. you know, colonization as it applies to our perception of music is more broadly understood there. So you know that that's what I see more of of our work here, even in just day to day dialogue away from triloquy, helping people understand that idea of what colonization has done to our uh, perception and to our use of that phrase classical music and how we really need to undo some of that. Another uh, important part of this article is talking about black children being discouraged from going into classical music or seriously pursuing it. I talk about that uh, when I talk about myself and my presentations about how uh, my parents, especially my mother, God bless her, just didn't see how music could be the thing that could financially support me. She wanted me mm -hmm. to be a plumber, you know, because <laughs> everyone will always need their toilet to flush. When we are at war, people may not need an orchestra, but they will need a flushing toilet, you know? So, uh, and, and, and listen, there are times when I did wish I knew how to do some of that plumbing, some of that electrician stuff when, yes. when those bills come through. But I think that is an example of how, um, I hate to use the word generational poverty because, you know, that word poverty, it can can be a, a trigger word. But when we talk about generational wealth, I think there is a converse that 
exists for uh, many people in communities of color. And just the idea of dedicating one life to something that isn't a surefire paycheck every Friday or every other Friday can mm-hmm. be hard for people to wrap their minds around. And I know that doesn't specifically go down racial lines. Maybe your parents had ideas about your wanting to dedicate your life to being an actor. <laughs> <laughs> well, they put up a good front. I can tell you yeah. that, but no, I'm, I'm a hundred percent in your camp. My parents both said you need to get a job with benefits and longevity. Yeah. So I picked acting <laughs> of all things. <laughs> right. Um, I want to back up to the previous uh, paragraph. They're talking about taking voluntary statistical studies. Right. That is among the orchestra members, or is that audience statistical surveys as well? Won't that inform programming at that point? Oh, yeah, for sure. So, uh, yeah, I, I definitely think that you have to you have to look at both sides of the curtain, I guess. The one thing I fear, though, is the emergence of a black version of the systemic issue of classical mm. music. I, I keep coming back to this. I think I talked about it in the Triloquy movement when Dell was co-hosting. But in the same way that black capitalism will not save us, neither will black integration into a discriminatory or Eurocentric ecosystem of music. It's not helping us if we have black gatekeepers programming the same old. I don't, I will go as far as to say it doesn't help us if we have uh, black conductors and black gatekeepers sticking within that Eurocentric aesthetic by way of William Grant Still and and all of these people, as important as it is to to name them, I'm beginning to worry that we don't have the people in place who think outside of that coloniality, as it said uh, in in this article of classical music. I think we really have to explore that idea more and more. But there are successes happening, and as it's uh, listed here in this article, uh, there has been, uh, in, in, uh, as a result of some of these conversations, use of the Bhangra style in, uh, ca- uh, in Canada to put forward a new face on classical music. The Maritime Bhangra Group and Symphony Nova Scotia put together a concert. There's no studio quality recording of it, so we're just going to listen to uh, a little Bhangra as it exists in its original form, in its classical form, to get us into the second movement. But we're here in the second movement where Scott and I are going to share a piece of music that we've been spending some time with this week and the context around it. I'm going to get us started. So I already mentioned that Dell and I celebrated uh, our six year anniversary this weekend. We took a, a quick trip over uh, to the to the gay headquarters. Headquarters. <laughs> <laughs> we went to uh, San Francisco. Beautiful city. Have you ever been there? Yeah, I've been there a couple times on business trips. Yeah, yeah I, I had, it was both of our first time. I, I do have to first of all say it was definitely grittier 
than I thought it would be. And, and, you know, not in a bad way, but it definitely has that city vibe. It's like, you know, San Francisco to me feels like a city that smoked a lot of cigarettes in the eighties. Probably. (laughs) Probably. It it just has that city feel to it. But of course it's so beautiful by the water and the multiculturalness of the city is also remarkable. You have a, a very, very, very present and to the front um, Asian influence of of all styles and and uh, and flavors. The uh, the Latine perspective is very mm-hmm. much there. You have a lot of uh, a blackness in San Francisco, and you have all the intersections of it. So of course, Del and I we didn't rent a car or anything. We we just uh, did cabs and Lyft drives everywhere, of and- which there are five. <laughs> We, we we did pretty well in, with, with the with the lift. Uh, all I'm saying all I'm saying is that I got stranded late one night and and no cab stopped for me and I would run to the other side of the street and then they're coming the other way and I yeah I couldn't get a cab to save my life. Well, that wasn't our struggle as much as the style of driving was my struggle. Y'all are intense over there. Listen. And I really need y'all to hear me. This is outside perspective. Please understand that the way that y'all drive is not the way everybody drives. It's not. (laughs) It's not. I I will admit that I I can get a little claustrophobic with a seatbelt on in the back seat. Like, of course, I always (laughs) put my seatbelt on when I drive or when I'm in the passenger seat. A lot of times I don't like to do that in the back seat. But when I tell you I was buckled up, in, in every one of those lift drives. <laughs> so uh, so I'm, I'm hanging on for dear life with these people flying by. But one lift driver in particular had this tune going that not only relaxed me a little bit, but had all of us in the car dance. And it was actually kind of a, a moment, a moment of music bringing people together. Uh, the name of the ensemble, at least as I know it, I hadn't heard of them, uh, is Compa 100 Limit. And the name of the tune is Boom Boom Compa. So we have people of color. We have black folks here who are representative of some of that uh, diaspora that we talk about, not necessarily uh, an Afro-American perspective on music, but one that is beyond that. And it had my shoulders twitching. It had my hips turning a little bit. And Mm. it was just some really nice music to vibe to as I was doing my best to (laughs) keep lunch down, so to speak. Here's a little bit of this. to having that dance sort of feel and that cultural feel you can hear in the in the background instruments the keyboard the guitar that there is virtuosity there and there is understanding of a classical approach to music making so those things come together created a, a really great car ride for me that is definitely the tune that I will always think about when I think about my visit to San Francisco aesthetically, you know, maybe for a lot of people that that's, that's more of a Florida sounds maybe, <laughs> but mm. that, that is definitely uh, the vibe that I was feeling in general visiting Question. San Francisco. And yeah, I always put that in, in, in my memory for that trip. You say, yeah, my question is, what was the worst music you heard in a lifter cab? <laughs> the, the through line that I was. What one say, were you ready to jump out? 
the and and that's what's interesting. The through line was that everyone was playing a different type of dance music. So there was definitely some more American black R and B sort of dance music. There was some uh, more strictly Mexican sort of banda dance music going on. But it just seems in general that that's what folks are are listening to. I think that was a consistent through line. Everyone was kind of bopping in the car. Maybe that's why they drive so intensely. <laughs> they, uh. Maybe they need some Beethoven or something in, in, in their lives. But yeah, really, really. So it was really like good. Grand Theft Auto, just whenever you got a new car. Yes, you're right. It, it was very much Grand Theft Auto. But anyway, shout out to Compa uh, 100 Limit and that tune, Boom Boom Compa. I have many more showers to to take with that piece of music and dance and and sing in, in in my future really great tune there but what you got this week you're 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 more in the concert hall this week right yeah it's interesting the the paths that the algorithm has taken me down because you know last week i was listening a lot to pharaoh sanders and the london symphony orchestra the promises yeah the promises release uh led me on to one by anthony davis and I have to say I was kind of half surprised to see it just show up. But from 2020, his piece called You Have the Right to Remain Silent. And when I brought it up to you, you said you you knew that piece. You'd, you you had heard about it. Yeah, as, as that one article in the first movement was talking about how a lot of these conversations were really to the front during 2020, I mm-hmm. definitely made it to this piece. This piece was sent to me by a number of people. Uh, I checked out the performance actually when it streamed. So this was still oh. back when we weren't in concert halls completely. Okay. This, this was live streamed on on youtube so i watched that uh performance of course uh shout out to anthony mcgill who uh is is featured here and uh, a really visceral sort of take on on those miranda rights you know in, in in this context it is let me give you a little bit of background if you're not familiar with the piece and how it flies in the face of the article that i brought in in the first movement and really to see these two things opposing one another like this was such it was begging to be talked about. It was such low-hanging fruit because the article talks about not wanting to hear your grievance. We don't want to hear your pain. Entertain. That's it. Well, in 2020, Anthony Davis is commissioned to write a piece of music about his experience getting stopped, about his experience at a traffic stop. And I have never experienced what he did where he, you know, he talked about being on his way to a concert. It was in Boston and uh, they get pulled over and his wife tells him he's got his gun out as he's, as he's walking up. And so the whole piece of music is about what he went through from that moment, you know, of getting stopped all the way through to the end. And it's nearly a half hour. And it goes through so many different emotions. I mean, Gustav Mahler said, your symphonies have to contain the whole world. Mm-hmm. I, so much is in this, you know, 28, 30 minutes worth of music.
you know, he's playing into a microphone that is adding in different effects and those sorts of things. So we're seeing mm-hmm. an expansion even from the strictly acoustic way of viewing the orchestral experience. It's not, uh, it wasn't showcased in that excerpt we played, but a part of the piece of music includes the other musicians in the ensemble saying the phrase, you have the right to remain right. silent. Actually, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to um, uh, a part of this piece that showcases that just so that we can hear. It's a lot. And then, of course, you can't ignore the dynamic of Anthony McGill, the only black man up there on Mm -hmm. stage. And then all of these white musicians, you know, saying that you have the right to remain silent. It's something it's it's uh, it's it's provocative, to say the very least. Anthony said that uh, he wanted to give the impression in the music of the orchestra sort of attacking the soloist, attacking the clarinet and swarming the clarinetist. Like I said, I have never had an experience like a traffic stop that Anthony talked about. And seeing as how I am more oriented toward artistic expression like music, this gave me a very good example, a very good idea of what was going through his mind during those moments. And people can go back and listen to Anthony Davis on Triloquy, you know, speaking of the the black joy that we pull out of all of these struggles. He thinks back to the police officer coming to the side of his car and asking him if his wife is okay <laughs> with laughter. What? You know, he's he's telling me that story laughing. And that and that is just uh, an example of what's even deeper in the pain and anguish of that piece of music is a black person that's at the end of the day feeling sorry for these poor officers. You're going to walk up and ask my wife, my white wife, if she is okay, just assuming that this must be a hostage situation. Right. She must be. Uh, kidnapped right now. Anyway, go listen. I, I'm not making something up. He talks about that on the Triloquy podcast. But again, uh, great, great to hear that piece of music. And again, understand, Scott, as you were saying there, just the musical aesthetic that can describe what that moment can be like, because we can laugh and joke in, in retrospect. But let, let's not pretend that death isn't potentially on the other side of each and every one of those interactions. What I have to say to whoever that writer was, the from the article that I brought in in the first movement, you are behind, you are three time zones behind your ass, <laughs> and that is that. All right, well, uh, we're going to go into the third movement here this week. I'm very honored to uh, have Garrett Schumann return to the Triloquy podcast, uh, an academic and a, a musicologist, a historian that has dedicated uh, a bunch of uh, a bunch of his research to historical, historical, historical composers of of color. I remember Scott, the composer Ignatius Sancho, uh, the black mm-hmm. man who was the first black person to vote over in England, who was also a composer born on a slave uh, ship 
from Africa to England. That is a name and a story that I first learned from Garrett Schumann. So that's a bit of the work he's doing. And he's joined this week here on Triloquy by Joe McCarty, a black man uh, from England who does similar work. We spent a lot of our time talking a bit about Vicente Lusitano, the composer who's uh, recently been coming to the front uh, from hundreds of years ago, a black composer who uh, serves as yet another example of the diversity that's always been inherent in this art form. We talk about the phenomenon of race in the world of historical music, generally speaking, and approaches that make this study challenging to existing systems, but door opening for those who are marginalized and those who are uh, interested in learning more about this very interesting intersection. Uh, So to get us into uh, our conversation, we're going to hear a little bit of uh, a piece of music uh, by Vicente Lusitano, a tune here called In Violata. This performance of it by the Marian Consort to get us into my conversation with Garrett Schumann and Joe McCarty. So, I mean, I came to Lusitano, I discovered Lusitano in, in 2020. And like, like full disclosure, I, I, I kind of live in, in this niche. <laughs> as, as Garrett said, um, I, I, I study harpsichord uh, um, from uh, at music college and, and my, my undergrad degree was very kind of early music focused. Um, and my, my dad's from the Democratic Republic of Congo. I'm, I'm, I'm a black person and, and I'd kind of made my peace in a way with working in a sector where I wasn't going to see myself until the later 18th century, shall we say that? I can't, you know what I mean? I, you know, I'd, I'd been working in this for a while. I was like, you know, I made my peace with it. And so I, then I, I saw, and, and Garrett mentioned this, um, person Alice Jones, I saw a tweet that she sent out in June 2020. She was going to a Black Lives Matter march. She had a placard. It said, you know, celebrate, teach, perform. I think these composers and a lot of the composers I'd heard of, but one of them really stuck out to me because the date seemed some 200 years earlier than than I had understood the you know the kind of earliest afro descendant person we could find like involved in writing this this music um and it was Vicente Lusitano and so yeah i i remember i phoned a friend of mine i phoned Chichi Nwanaku uh, who runs the Chinike um, foundation and i said hey Chichi i music history's just kind of shifted for me <laughs> in quite a, a major way um, and it was that it was that kind of revelatory. Yeah. So I, I came to it later than Garrett, um, but I, I came to it in a, a really quite specific way because it was, you know, during during that moment, that movement um, of, of of focusing on Black lives in that horrible time. Um, and I think, you know, I, I ought to always remember that, and I ought to always tell that as part of the story. I mean, that's how I came came to find out about this person and then got in touch with Garrett and and the rest is it's been this incredible journey of discovery yeah 
it's really fascinating to me, Joe, to hear you talk about discovering Lusitano in 2020 as someone who has dedicated his life to this era of (laughs) of music. What have you noticed as uh, reactions from some of your colleagues who are also steeped in this work? (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, again, I I live and work in in Great Britain, in England, and I I work in, in the the choral sector here. So we spend probably, it's, it's probably more normalized, as it were, to sing 16th century music um, and mm. early 17th century music on a kind of regular basis. Um, uh, that's not to say it doesn't happen in other places, but I think it probably happens quite regularly here. Um, and I think that the reactions are interesting. I think and again, this is where where I, I I get quite excited, just and and curious, you know. Uh, on one hand, you you know it's a spectrum, so people are really excited. Oh my goodness, we'd never heard of this person. Let's get the music. Let's sing the music. And you know, I've sung it with with various choirs that I've worked with, and we're really excited to do it. You know, it's great music to sing. Um, you can get, I think, some reactions which are. Well, I, I mean, uh, to, you could caricature them as well, but how how do you know he's black? He can't mm. actually be black, and and so there's this this sort of uh, what would you say? This kind of hedging of bets that that people don't quite want to accept that somebody of African descent could actually be making this music at that time. Um, so there's there's a spectrum. I think there's a spectrum of mostly I've been really really positive and really excited, but there's the there there is a corner that that Garrett and I keep coming <laughs> up. Well, we keep we keep meeting a, a corner of 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 reception, which is yeah, which really interests me and like uh, I I want to I want to know it, it really puzzles me and and interests me. Why why do you why do you have this problem accepting? that somebody somebody of this identity at that time was making this stuff. Garrett, what does reaction look like apart from uh, the professionals, the the historians? You know, when you're talking to students or maybe even just broader audiences, what have you noticed uh, reactions being? Um, I, I mean, overwhelmingly, people think it's a really cool story and they're amazed and the resistance that joe mentioned it's not even academics overall it's mm. it's musicologists only there's actually a wonderful um piece of writing that joe and i reference in an in progress thing where we have where um kate lowe is an art historian um based in the uk and she's done a lot of work on um African descended representations of African descended people in 15th and 16th century Southern Europe. And in one of the, a chapter that she wrote, she talks about Lusitano and she says that there's this weird thing in musicology where like people know about him. He's actually famous for a very specific reason among early music scholars, but he's totally dissociated from his identity. And so there's, it's like the, the conflict that happens. So like for people who aren't, well, I suppose like a regular person probably doesn't expect that there was a like they don't walk around thinking like, oh, there were black composers in Europe in the 16th century. Mm-hmm. People don't think about that. Um, but I think it's people who the resistance comes from that being steeped in 
the mythology that holds up these institutions of like musicology and the classical music tradition where like it, he really pokes a hole in how we view the past and 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 we in this phrase is white people like me um and misconceptions about the racial hom homogeneity of europe not only in the early modern period but throughout its history um and those misconceptions have to be reinforced in order to support other um, uh, misunderstandings about the past and present and future. And so I think like the resistance comes from very specific places. Like with the New York Times article, I've gotten hundreds of responses to it and three have been skeptical. One person went to my website and through the con found me on the internet and through the contact form said keep woke politics out of the arts <laughs> and i was like this must be reaching a lot of people and then and then there were some academics um who were on facebook and bringing up the same thing that joe said like how can we verify this and that sort of thing and, and it was pretty gross really it was like we don't know what he looked like we don't know how dark his skin was and stuff and none of that's really important to this um especially because the way uh, racialized identity was thought about at that time as very different from now. So it's like anachronistic and it's racist and it's c disgusting. Um, but that always comes up, this like issue of verification, which is, it's really too bad because when you're studying people from 500 years ago, documentation is in inherently limited. Mm -hmm. So, and like people who are familiar with working with figures from that time, especially people, um, some of the work that Joe and I have done has really leaned on wonderful research by Black studies and diaspora studies scholars like Sadia Hartman and Ronaldo Walcott and and Mar Marissa Fuentes and Mary Ramburam Olm. And like, these are experts who have a lot more experience doing this kind of work. And like the under, you, you have to accept that documentation will be limited. But that's not the only kind of evidence. And so we look at a lot of different kinds of evidence, and it's pretty clear if you do that. So. Yeah, Garrett's use of the word misconception reminds me about a conversation that I had with a Joseph Ballone expert. One of his big points, Joe, was that we don't often consider the fact that he was marginalized even within his time. There's this misconception that he was uh, accepted by society, but his lived experience was quite different. I wonder if there's any research that speaks to the lived experience of Lusitano in this regard. Yeah, I mean, we we have a, <laughs> I, I don't want to throw shade at a, a good TV show, but we there's a kind of Bridgetonization of like the, the pre-early 19th century sometimes, so the idea that was some kind of racial um, paradise or, or <laughs> that, that racism was was invented um, later. And, you know, that, that's really not the case. We, we don't have... Um, specifics about things that Lusitano faced. He didn't leave or we haven't found anything where we've found that he like some that, that, that somebody said or did something to him directly. But what we can see is the circumstances in which he was born. Um so um it's funny I, I'm just just reading at the moment um Hortense Spiller's uh, uh Mama's baby, Papa's maybe um, mm. And it's it's quite interesting because Lusitano's first biography, it just says sin apellido, so it says has no surname. And so 
before we even start to talk about Lusitano's life, we like we breathe in, we pause, and we think about the circumstances of a birth of a mixed race, um, white and African baby, most likely born to an elite white father and an African descendant mother who could well have been enslaved. And so the the even the beginnings of his life are marked by by trauma um or the potential for trauma um and the the um the histories of of enslavement and of colonization and colonization um as particularly as it affects women and then if we look at the the time in which he was born if we look at his career we can find that okay yes he was ordained a priest why maybe why does he not have so why don't we find him getting a job as a choir master or as director of music or whatever and then we look at the circumstances in which um um african descendant black men were allowed to be ordained priests and we find that actually in 1518 the king of portugal and the pope kind of cooked it up and they said well these guys can get ordained priests but nobody's going to pay them anything they're not going to they're not going to receive any money mm or any benefits from uh, or be in charge of anything okay so it's again the circumstances in which he's he's moving around are incredibly circumscribed um and so i think i think we can look at what was life like for um <clears throat> black people in portugal in the 1550s and earlier and we can find actually that it was not a particularly particularly easy life and it was marked by discrimination and racism and i think that's it's, it's really quite difficult to reckon with because it's here's somebody who who was adjacent to some very elite people we look at his biography like you know he's in the he's in the courtyards of cardinals and he's in the retinue of aristocrats and things like that but i think the his identity his his blackness was a place where his life was made incredibly difficult just by the customs and the laws of, especially um, Portugal and Spain of Iberia when he was when he was born. Mm -hmm. So, Garrett, with that context, is it a stretch or inappropriate to attribute his obscurity or relative obscurity? to racism. There are many people who would argue that there are hundreds of composers of many shades who we'll never know about because of the way records were kept or the way records weren't kept. Is it fair, again, to attribute racism to the obscurity of Lusitano? Um, I, th I think it depends on which point of erasure we're talking about. So something that I find so interesting about Lusitano's story as a both during his life and then posthumously as a historical figure and is for a lot of that um like from the 17th from the 18th century onward the information evidencing his identity as a person of African descent was not widely known it was not widely dispersed it was in a manuscript in portugal and i'm sure some people saw it but it wasn't in the histories that were printed and then reproduced and that sort of thing so when you see people um in the late 1800s um you see people start to like reclaim his music and reclaim his academic work and it's 
not directly related to like a um to his to his race because they don't know mm-hmm. and so how he became obscured like he was known because of this interaction he had with Nicola Vicentino, who is an Italian contemporary. They, they were in this famous music theory dispute. And part of the reason that um, Lusitano's uh, reputation was kind of suppressed was because Vicentino was much more powerful um, and used his extremely um, well-resourced treatise in 1555 to um, fabricate things that Lusitano said in the dispute and essentially spread a new narrative that made Vicentino look heroic. And so that became the history and that became the context that people in the subsequent centuries until the 20th century talked about Lusitano as like this incidental figure who confronted Vicentino, may have won in the moment, but Vicentino's ideas were more important. So Lusitano doesn't really matter. And all of that happens not it's i'm sure there are pro- there may be some indirect things about vicentino's relationship to lusitano that have to do with um lusitano's identity but you know once we get into the 18th and 19th century like people don't know it's all about upholding the inherited narrative about lusitano being old fashioned or just like not a significant figure and so so there's what he reveals is not only um like tendencies that exclude, you know, members of oppressed populations, but just tendencies that exclude exactly the, what you said. Like there are a lot of people who are excluded from this tradition and from these histories. And he suffered the exact same processes um, of, you know, there being an absence of resources to explore existing manuscripts, a, a lack of interest in revising or verifying information. I mean, there were scholars in Italy who reproduced what Nicola Vincentino wrote, even though they had access to sources that contradicted it, simply because they preferred what Vincentino had to say. And so there's subjectivity that becomes objective fact. Hmm. There's um, and, and, a, and a total lack of interest from later historians to like interrogate these sources. In 1870, this Portuguese scholar named Vasconcelos, um, he writes this big history of Portuguese music and he writes about Lusitano, the first new biographical entry in like hundreds of years. And he totally debunks what Vicentino says and his like magical trick is to look at primary sources that are accessible. (laughs) <laughs> like essentially the the thing that you think scholars would do like people just didn't look at things and so you see this like haphazardness come forward for like these you know the history that we inherit we think that you know for generations scholars have been like checking in every cabinet and like you know looking for everything but no they're just passing down things that were passed down to them and so lusitano represents that it's only until the and and the revision that happens is like really about like oh let's look at the printed things that we can find and let's in 1870 Vasconcellos is like let's look at his music like nobody talks about his music but the editions are there like we should talk about it um it was in portuguese so there's another factor for like being that his first lusitano's first advocates um we're writing in Portugal, like that's not a center, that's not part of the center of the classical music academic tradition mm-hmm. because that would be France, Germany, et cetera. 
And so like that has something to do with it. And that's also sort of secondary to his racialized identity. Um, so there are other biases that his story shows. Um, and then when the information, when in 1977, when this dissertation is published, that goes back, the first person to go back to the manuscript that first talks about, except for someone in the 1700s who just ignored the information about Lusitano being Black. Um, but the first time it was revisited and they publish it, like, then you start to see the the resistance of like people either not being interested, people mm -hmm. being um, angry about the possibility of there being a Black composer in the Renaissance, um, people accepting the information but not thinking it is very relevant to musicological mm -hmm. work um, or like that big of a deal. And uh, again, when I say people here, I must, I'm, <laughs> I'm talking about people who look like me. I just want to clarify that. Um, and so, uh, and, and actually it's interesting because if you, if you trace it, it's like um, people involved with the Center for Black Music Research, they're really excited about it. And um other people who have a history, there's a scholar, Robert Stevenson, who was kind of involved with CBMR, and he he did a lot of work with um, composers, uh, like uh, composers of African descent in Brazil and that sort of thing. So like he sort of had this interest, like area of interest that it was relevant to, I guess. So he writes about Lusitano in English for the first time and talks about him being Black. Um, but you look at these biographies, uh, oh, the, something that, so you know you've studied something so much when like you see a new source and the first thing you do is you look at the bibliography to see mm -hmm. if it's bullshit or not. Yeah. <laughs> and I went, I had this experience last semester where I found this, um, it, it's the, it's a like critical edition of one of Lusitano's publications and it was made in the 1990s. And for some reason, the bibliography does not include the essay, the English language essay about Lusitano's identity. And I don't know, perhaps it was hard to find. I mean, there's still issues of access. Like the mm -hmm. dissertation that talked about it is not like something that's easy to access um, until we get to the internet age, I guess. Um, but it's like, why are people not citing these things? And, and so that's just like either ignorance or disdain or disinterest and that sort of thing. And and so, like, the specific resistance, at least in what I've been able to observe and everything that we've researched, the specific resistance the, that you could characterize as being racist is fairly new. Hmm. The other obstacles are just, you know, what is built into the academic enterprise of classical music where it's designed not to include everyone. And right. so when it is, when that is sort of, at the center of what is happening, yeah, a lot of people are going to be left out, and more. Some people are more vulnerable for that. People who are part of, you know, these oppressed populations like Lusitano. But yeah, you have Italian composers who wrote sonatas in at the same time as Beethoven that are a little different, and we don't talk about it because it doesn't help the narrative of Beethoven's <laughs> sonatas innovations. And like, sorry, bye, we don't care about you. And it's the same thing; it's just um, a different manifestation of that same practice. So, I'll, I'll actually close us out with a Beethoven question. I'm uh, just just as a <laughs> as a warning, but maybe you can guess the question. But oh, Joe, you know, it's it's one thing to talk about academic accessibility. Mm -hmm. I kind of want to shift and talk about musical accessibility. Mm -hmm. When yeah. we listen to the music of Lusitano, what are we listening to? And, and what's your approach to 
uh, making the point of his significance to people who may not necessarily be experts on 16th century music. Yeah, yeah. I I think um, we're listening to a kind of counterpoint, a kind of focal counterpoint that is incredibly dense and rich, sonorous, um, harmonically scrunchy. I would say that's a that's a good good word for it. Um, he possibly has one of the longest um, me contra fa or false relations or um, whatever you want to call them um, that I've ever found. Uh, he's really not scared of parts sort of bashing up against each other and moving away um, to, to make to make his point. So it's 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 very colorful music. It's in, it's, it's really the, the, the tunes he writes. So the, the, the tunes that make up the counterpoint are really nice. And you, you, can, you can't often say that about polyphonic composers, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but the, the melodies are, are really beautiful. Um, and I, there's, there's a huge amount of scope for different types of performance. So I, the, the pitch he wrote it at, for example, like the pitch he, he published it at is actually quite low. So you can do it all like really kind of sonorous sound for lower voices, or you can you can transpose it up and do it for high and low voices. Um and we did we did both of those things. So I think there's 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 real richness and beauty and and there's a there's a there's an overwhelming calm, but there's also this this kind of um this harmonic adventurousness or this harmonic fearlessness, shall we say, that 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 goes through it. Um, and it's it's nice to listen to. Um, <laughs> it's really nice to listen to. And it's nice to sing. And it's it looks, I think it gets a bit of a rep. Um, the the few sources that that looked at the music. So um Robert Stevenson said, well, there aren't many rests and the the middle parts are too hard. And when we, you know, they're not easy, but they're not not singable. Yeah, they're 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 really they're, and they're actually nice to sing as well. I've, I've never never brought the, that music to a group of people, even even the children's choir I work with, who are pretty skeptical, shall we say, of music that doesn't have a tune and a rhythm that they can like pick up pretty quickly, right? Um, but even with the children's choir, I've not not met many singers who have been. I don't like this. After mm-hmm. after singing it, you know, it's, but most people have been actually. Wow, this is amazing! We want to sing more of it. Um, and brilliantly, people are people are making the music available, um, both for people to sing and also for people to to hear, which is just great. So, in considering the different approach that's required to perform this music, at least you know in these middle sections that you're describing, yeah. Yeah. I wonder if you think this opens the door for um, broadened pedagogy, or if there is a way to utilize this music um, for a new way to teach performance or to teach music. I mean, I th- I think so. That it was. It's fun. I, I'm kind of. I've gone back to school. I, I, I'm writing my PhD at the moment. But when I when I did my undergrad um, millions of years ago, um, <laughs> when the millennium was but young, I I remember that that we had a very very deep but narrow knowledge of a certain type of this kind of music. So it was it was Palestrina, Lassus, and Bird. We were the composers that we knew about. And we we studied and we had to kind of write like them in exams and you know and all of that stuff. And I think that 
that just brought as you say it, there's a potential to broaden how this music actually sounds and what this music goes like and how this music might go um and i think there's also i know that there's there's a there's potential to to perform it instrumentally um and there's potential to do all sorts of cool things garrett does cool things with it with his um synthesizers which he might talk about <laughs> um but we there are there are things we can find them you know to sort of circle back a, a few questions when when Gary was talking about Alice Jones's reaction we 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 recorded some of the pieces um with Chinike voices which is an adult ensemble but one of the pieces we has a has a has a a, a pre-existing tune in long notes um and we 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 used a children's choir for that the children's choir of St John the Divine Kennington it's a church in South London um a wonderful music program for young people most of the most of the choir are, are children of color and one one of my colleagues at the end of the rehearsal, we were walking out. One of my colleagues overheard one of the little girls say, that could have been one of my ancestors that wrote that. And I thought, you know, I could have stopped. We could have stopped the project there, right? We could have gone for dinner mm -hmm. and gone home. Because the, the idea that, that a child, a black child, can say that I have a part in this, and I have had a part in this for the last 500 years. It's pretty mind blowing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm happy with that. I'm happy with that result. If not, if nothing else happens, I think that 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 is enough in many ways. I feel like the the wonderful work that Garrett's been doing, um, that you know, it's the work that that a, a few of us have been doing on that. That to have that impact of opening up a space for people to occupy who maybe didn't feel that they occupied it in in quite that way, I think that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. So Garrett, it's one thing to just simply program Lusitano's music in the spaces where you know that that sort of music is is celebrated. I wonder what that looks like on the academic side. Is there an immediate a uh, curriculum response to this new discovery? Are you seeing his name uh, being integrated, for lack of a better word, into music history courses and and that sort of thing? Or will it take time for his name to be a part of you know music history one hundred and one or whenever one studies uh, music from the Renaissance? Um, I I know that there are there are people I know who teach music theory who even before 2020 we're using, there was one piece of his, this motet called Hey You May Domine, which is extremely chromatic and intentionally so, because he was trying to make up academic point through the piece. And so people were like using that a little bit. And that was the only thing that was really ever performed prior to 2020. And um, since, like I know there were people, music theory faculty at different places who were really adamant in, in response to the Black Lives Matter movement in, in 2020 to make their courses more diverse, attempt anti-racism. I don't know mm -hmm. how successful that was um, because it's really hard to change an institution like a conservatory curriculum. Um, but uh, And so I know some people started including him there. There's an open source music theory textbook called Open Music Theory that I gave some examples of Lusitano's 
to like I, I mocked up some things that were topically relevant. Um, and so, so if you use that textbook, there's some Lusitano examples in there. Um, you know, when early, like when I first started researching composers like Lusitano, it was really focused on music theory pedagogy and like making examples and that sort of thing. Um, and through the, especially working with Joe, because we have these like different expertises that we've been able to fuse together and stuff like, I think it really has to, it, this isn't, this is maybe turning your question a little bit, Garrett, so I apologize, but no it really has to be multi-pronged. So it can't just be, it has to be programming and it has to be scholarship and it has to be teaching. Um, and then that will, uh, because if this, if it's only scholarship, it's going to be too esoteric, even like writing some, writing one article in the New York times, like that's great, but it, you need to reinforce his story through performance and the performances need to be reinforced by the academic work. And then it needs mm -hmm. to get in the classroom. So people, I remember listening to an early episode of Triloquy and one of your guests was a radio host in um, Tennessee and I, and she programmed a lot of women composers. And oh, I, remember sure. this Dodson, episode, yeah. I remember this because she went to Appalachian state university, which is a place I've taught in the past. So I remembered that. And she was like, I never knew. And it was this great, I never knew about, I never learned about women composers. And it was this great example of like, you have to teach these people because when music students like go out into the professional world, they need to be armed with this knowledge because they don't know when and if they're going to deploy it. But in order to teach it effectively, you have to have recordings, you have to have performance experience, and you have to have scholarship because people might, you know, having, there, there has since 2014, um, which was like, there, like Joe's, Joe's and my work, it builds on a lot of people's work, but in 2014, there's some really excellent scholarship published by a group of, um, musicologists in France about one of Lusitano's treatises. And that was like an important moment to be like, there's a lot here that matters that we need to explore. And it certainly buoyed my interest in, in exploring Lusitano. And even though that that is like extremely specific and very niche, like just having that interest, um, I think motivates people to explore and also kind of justifies him as a subject. Um, and then that supports the performance and then that supports the teaching. So it all has to be connected. And since the, since I've talked to people, cause we, Joe and I revised the article on Lusitano that appears in the Grove music encyclopedia, the online version, and that got published at the end of 2022. So, and then this New York times article at the beginning of 23. And so I've been talking to a lot of people and I know people who are assigning those things in both of them in their classes this semester um and i know people joe and i have talked to classes before about lusitano um so i know people are teaching him but it's i think there's probably some kind of barrier of getting him outside of early music mm. that's still as a pedagogical not not that he does not possess the capacity, but kind of like a barrier of imagination, really. From from, um, I find his story like totally modern in some ways uh, because of, for example, the role of like printed information versus manuscripts. That's like is something on the internet or not? You know, it's just like totally parallel. I think in some ways, but um, hopefully with the 
with, I mean, a lot of people have performed his music, like Chanticleer performed his music in 2021, like a lot of college groups in, or in Europe and Canada and the United States, church choirs and that sort of thing. So I think you know, the more p- we, people just need contact with mm. his story and his music um, in different ways. And so hopefully that keeps happening in as many different spaces as possible. You know, the concert hall, the classroom, um, reading, Grove. I don't know if anyone does that for fun. But. <laughs> yeah, I haven't thought about Grove since my grad school days. Actually, <laughs> so thank you for the reminder. Uh, <laughs> so you know, Joe, I actually spent a little bit of time last night uh, listening mm. to a performance of Lusitano's works uh, as performed by Boston uh, Baroque, the the, the yeah. ensemble. Yeah, yeah. And you know, something that I instantly thought about was the fact that aesthetically, this isn't music that I would necessarily spend much of my free time with, but in context of thinking about, you know, the fact that I'm hearing the voice of a black person whose music has really just stood the test of time, despite mm. all of the, you know, efforts to to erase him from history, really mm. that creates my connection and really uh, piques my interest. And then, you know, from that helps me to have a real connection with what I'm hearing. You know, that experience yeah. is is different. With that in mind, you know, with that as an example, do you think Lusitano's identity is enough to broaden audiences generally around music of this aesthetic? Is it enough to say this is among the music that Black people have written and it should be appreciated for that reason? Well, I would say so, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you put it so beautifully. How, how else do we hear the voices of people? pre-phonograph right how else do we know how else do we get an insight into to the sounds how else can we participate with them in making sounds how can we give breath to and 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 breathe life into what they have left and and i want to hear that i want to hear that and i want to hear the sound of a black person in the 16th century or as near as I can approach to that. And I think there is something really beautiful and enough about that. I sometimes shy away from, you know, I I work in a sector (laughs) where people will stay, still say things like, but is it good music? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and I'm like, well, I mean, I like it. Is that enough? I like, and as you say, I like it for all sorts of reasons. Do do I go and, you know, it? I had my Spotify unwrapped recently. Is it full of Gombert and Joscan? No. Um, (laughs) But do I? Do I? Am I compelled? Am I compelled to try and get in touch with the sound, with the voice? of someone who shared something quite quite deep with me from all that time ago right at the beginning of when right at the beginning of when your the european project to marginalize black people begins like right at that point mm-hmm. right at that point at the creation if you like of whiteness and blackness right? in the, in that project there's 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 we're singing and we can still hear that and I, oh gara i 
I'd, I'd listen to that. <laughs> <laughs> so would I. Uh, Garrett, how can, how can people learn more about uh, Lusitano and broadly the, the work that you do in uncovering these uh, composers from ages ago who happen to be people of color? Well, um, the, well I, have a, I have a website garrettschuman.com you can keep track of stuff there but for for lusitano and i'm on twitter mostly and i'll tweet a lot so you can get a lot there if you want my username is g-a-r-r-t um but uh i think for for lusitano um what's amazing is how much like there's really an explosion of stuff on uh, available on the internet really from like the summer of 2020 on like and it's really an incredible testament to like some of the good that can come out of the internet and social media. So like if you put them into YouTube, there are a ton of really good performances. I, I highly recommend the, um, at, at least until the recording of that Joe made comes out, I really recommend the Marion Consort's uh, recent uh, September 22 recording, um, Vicente Lusitano Motets. They're a really, really good vocal ensemble from the UK. And that is the first commercial recording to like only include motets of Lusitano. Um, and uh, it's a very, very good performance. Um, but if you, if you search on YouTube, there are a ton of recordings there's some great actually the boston baroque they 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 did a wonderful string quartet arrangement of one of his pieces which is gorgeous i think um i'm unfortunately can't remember the person who arranged it but it's a very very beautiful thing so people have been really creative um using um in their approach to lusitano's music and you can find a ton of things like my parents told some of their friends and they sent an email back like with like, oh, look at all these pieces I found. And 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 like these are people who don't listen to Renaissance polyphony at all. Mm-hmm. Um and so I do think that the music is um I think consistently through history, people have returned to Lusitano, especially like beginning in the late 19th century when Portuguese scholars were like, we need to pay attention to him. It they were angry about his treatment and uh, and like in Grove, actually, was one of the things they call out. Uh because they're like his music is good, so like people have people have agreed for hundreds of years that he writes good music, and that I think that's continued. So I would say definitely listen to it. And if you want to read about it, um, I mean, I think the article I just published in, in the New York Times was is a great place to start. Um, I also wrote something a couple years ago for Van Magazine, which um, it's a little I don't know as much. I didn't know as much when I when I wrote it. So I would say if you have to choose, right read the most recent one and then um you should reach out to me or joe or um find us on social media and we'd be happy to curate your lusitano experience it's one of the something i've been able to reflect on recently is just the cool community of people like all over like people in portugal france italy the uk the united states canada like all these people are kind of compelled by lusitano in different ways and we've been able to connect with them over the last few years so please do that too if you want yeah, to learn come more. join us come join yeah. the lusitano club this yeah we're going to make a cult of lusitano <laughs> to take over <laughs> classical music <No. laughs> So, Joe, you'll have to uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I understand uh, Black History Month in your neck of the woods is October, correct? It's October, yes. Just, just okay. to yeah, make make it. Which means that we get, you know, if if you're if you're an Anglophone Black person, you get two. And living in Britain, you know, you get two Black 
Black History Month. Yeah. <laughs> well, for, <laughs> for, for folks uh, in, in my neck of the woods, you know, celebrating uh, Black History Month in February, one of the conversations that I'm sure will eventually rise back to the top is uh, Beethoven's identity, whether or not Beethoven mm -hmm. was Black. We can talk about Lusitano. I've definitely seen the conversation of Beethoven's race uh, be a part of pop culture, be a part yeah. of social media. Considering you know the discoveries we're making about people like Lusitano, in your opinion, do you think it's worth revisiting once again the conversation <laughs> of whether or not Beethoven was Black? That surely could be something that just so happened, quote unquote, to be left out of history, right? It, it could, it could well be. I, I might. Can I offer a controversial opinion that I might regret? Please. That maybe we should spend less time worrying about Beethoven. In general, yeah. Full, <laughs> I <agree>. full stop. <laughs> <laughs> there's loads of cool black, you know. There's loads of cool composers out there. I and uh, and I'm uh, and and um, and there's a, there's a lot of black voices out there that we we still need to hear. And if Beethoven is one of those black voices, that's awesome. But I'm going to spend my time with Vicente. beautiful and if i may say a very in tune performance by the marion concert consort there uh tuned by vicente lusitano called in violata i wonder scott what your response is to the last question that i asked joe mccarty basically i was saying if we're still learning about black composers period from way back when it's very much in the realm of possibility for us to finally find out that beethoven is black but joe said damn beethoven Let's just talk about somebody else. It does not matter. What, well, what, what, what is your reaction to that reaction? As huge of a thing as it would be for us to confirm that Beethoven was black, you still have composers, uh, sorry, not composers, but researchers out there saying, even with that possibility, there are so many other people for us to be spending our time with and our energy on. I thought it was uh, the setup to a joke with no punchline because I was sitting there waiting for, he says, Shouldn't we just worry less about Beethoven? And, you know, and I thought he would say, no. And then here's the, I could just see me sitting here waiting for him to finish. And he's expecting me to just get the gist of it. But yeah, I get it. The, so what? So, I mean, if we find out that he's black, are we going to play him more or less? And see, <laughs> Scott, you are hitting on this stuff today. <laughs> I'm a little feverish, not, so that not, that, not, that must be they it. Will, not they will put Beethoven to the side for more Schubert. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, amen. Thank you so much to Garrett Schubert <laughs> and to Joe McCarty for joining me this week. Such an incredible conversation. I'll have uh, links to uh, their uh, work in the description of this. I hope that y'all will check it out. But we're going to go into the uh, final movement here with some music by good old Sammy Davis Jr. You've heard of him, haven't you, Scott? Of course. This is a tune of his called What Kind of Fool Am I? We'll listen to a little <laughs> bit of it, and I'll see y'all on the other side. We'll get into the triloquy. What kind of fool am I? 
who never fell in love it seems that i'm the only one that i have been thinking of what kind of man is this an empty shell Talk about classical music. Is that not the most charming orchestration you've heard all week? Oh my goodness, beautiful. I dig it. I mean the the, the, charming, gentle, you know? the gentle trills and the the, <laughs> the uh, I mean it was almost like a listening to a Disney movie. <laughs> okay. I love that era because everybody had a band. Everybody had a big orchestra sitting behind them. It was fantastic. And it's classical music at the end of the day, but that's not what this is about. So we oh. listened to some music by Sammy Davis Jr. because this was somebody who was a black Jewish person. I, I guess you knew that already, Scott? Yeah. Yeah, I did. And and in fact, um, there's examples of it. If you look hard enough, uh, there's examples of Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin making jokes to that expense. Really? Wow. Well, I learned that and uh, learned more about that black Jewish intersection because, you know, even in a contemporary sense, we got to talk about Eric Andre. Drake is Mm. black and Jewish, you know, of, Mm -hmm. of, of, you know, speaking to very famous people. Anyway, it's come up for me because this week, um, actually the same day that this comes out, uh, I'm, I'm presenting uh, a dialogue alongside my dear friend and composer, uh, Mike Laster, uh, who's based over in New York City. He's a, He uh, is a, a Jewish composer. Um, we're talking about Black-Jewish relations, <laughs> which have been strained in, in, uh, in, in recent months over this diplomatic. I, I think it's it's fair to say exploring that intersection, you know, has really been a journey for me. I've learned a lot. I have uh, made discoveries like Sammy Davis Jr. being uh, black and Jewish and revisiting some of his music. And it's taught me a lot about some of the deeper requirements of unity, you know, even outside of the strict context of black Jewish relations, what some of that unity uh is 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 going to require and mm. what i want to center the conversation here today on is a woman named elaine scoridine foreman so this is a uh, a famous violin teacher I, I wish i could share a recording of her i haven't been able to uh, find a recording of her playing but she's taught many 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 of the uh the greatest and she has taught <laughs> louis farrakhan he was one of her students, and it's documented in uh, documentaries and in writings, in, in newspaper articles. I'm going to read here uh, an article from uh, th- this is a historic t- uh, piece from New York Daily News with the headline Violin Teacher Sees Different Farrakhan. Uh, I'm quoting here He's not exactly your typical student, Elaine Scoridan says. Farrakhan was apparently unaware of Foreman's Jewish religion on uh, the day four years ago when he got the telephone to inquire about lessons. Foreman did know Farrakhan is the leader of the Nation of Islam, who at once called Hitler a, quote, great man, quote Mm. here. My -hmm. husband told me, you never turn down a challenge in your life. Why will you turn down this one? So, you know, just to make sure that we're following, we have a Jewish violinist who not only knows who Louis Farrakhan is, but is able 
to quote to some degree the things that he has said about Jewish communities and still decides to take him on as a student. As well, as you can see, if you choose to view the documentary, I'm not going to retweet a, a movie, but uh, if you choose to find, search for, and watch the documentary about Farrakhan's preparation of his performance of the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto, not only do you see the relationship that he makes with this Jewish musician, but how that results in a performance of a piece of music by a Jewish composer, Felix mm -hmm. Mendelssohn, in right. an orchestra that includes Black and Jewish musicians, and an audience that includes not only Jewish people, but members of the Nation of Islam. At the crux of that moment that happened, you know, we can talk about all of the news articles, all the quotes that we can pull from Farrakhan, all of the problematic things that have been stated. And that is something that happened because a woman named Elaine said, you know what? I'm going to try to make this cultural connection anyway. That is something that's really been impacting the way that I'm thinking, and uh, not only in preparation for the uh, UCLA collaboration this week, but just in general, in the way that I'm, I'm thinking about paths forward toward unity and decolonizing classical music. Uh, there's a, a, a man named Daryl Davis, who we've talked about here on Truloquy before, a blues musician who made connections with members of the Ku Klux Klan. and told a story about how doing so changed the heart of, of some people. The first time I read that story, Scott, I just knew, I, I can just clearly remember how I was saying to myself, I'm just not there. I'd be goddamned if mm -hmm. I'm sitting down yeah. and making friends with a member of the clan. Now with that and the story about Elaine Foreman in my, uh, in, in, in my thoughts these days, maybe there is, some sacrifice, some ego setting aside that has to be done when we talk about dialoguing and making connections with the so-called other. What do these examples make you think of or bring up for you? A Black man willing to make friends with a Klan member toward the changing of a heart, a Jewish woman who not only made friends with, but taught and dedicated time and energy to one of the most outspoken um, anti-Semites Right. Out there, at least how he's he's coined uh, it, uh, broadly. What, what is that? What what? Rick, g give me something. <laughs> it, it makes me think of a lot of things, and I have to preface all of this by saying that I do not know uh, Louis Farrakhan's history. I don't know much detail about it, and so I'm reluctant to step out too far. My first question is not about the blues musician and the Klansman. It is about Farrakhan and his teacher. Does that change? your perspective does that change anyone's perspective is that what the piece is meant to do is that what that story was meant to what's notable what, what's notable to me is that elaine was fully aware of farrakhan it would be one thing to say she just didn't know but she did if she's able to quote you know what was quoted there in that article it, it's it's notable it's it, it's something i think to to even honor and to to look up to and do you know any specifics of the the blues musician that got with the uh, that made friends with the Klan? So I've interviewed Daryl Davis, not for Triloquy. I don't know a whole bunch of the details, but it's it's clear, and there are articles uh, about him that say he made friends and was able to change hearts. Do you think that that that's a possibility widespread? Is basically I'm asking: is that uh, a one-off? Or does that happen more often than we think? 
Well, it's not a one-off because it's at the very least a two-off, you know, <laughs> an example you know what I mean, from, from, from different uh, communities, you know, I think more than I think about it as a possibility, I think I'm beginning to think about it as a necessity. So how can we utilize what we have learned about the power of setting certain things aside for the sake of creating a relationship? I guess what I'm speaking to is I'm not going directly down into Mississippi in whatever communities and trying to ring on doorbells and shake hands because I don't want to die. Okay. (laughs) Right. What can be done is someone who has organic proximity to people who think that way or, or or who hold some of those racist beliefs to for them to be that bridge. I mean, for you, Scott, there are people that you have access to who are very racist, who are very whatever ist, but will sit with you and have a beer. There are certain spaces that you can walk into and not get the record scratch that I get when I walk into certain spaces. Right. I think it, I, I think what what we need to start talking about is how white people in search of being an ally or an accomplice, not necessarily trying to be friends with every black person, but going into the redneck bar, excuse my French, going into the motorcycle club, going wherever and trying to create friendships that can lead to conversations that lead to shifting of ideals and, and beliefs. That is a way to understand somebody's experience. And, uh, I know for a fact that there are some people that are racist or or sexist or whatever is that tone it down when I get nearby. And so that takes some finesse and to not have it end up in a fight. And I don't think that you get that just by necessarily walking into a bar or somebody else's church or something like that, because I think people put up a front at first. Uh, How much of that is at play, you know, of uh, people code switching when they get around a a white person that they know has some of these opinions that we talk about on the podcast. And I think, and I also get what you're saying in that it's not always engaging a white person, engaging with people of color to understand their story. But, engaging with the other white folk around you because so often that turns um, into labor for us if, if I'm, <laughs> you know no and i and there was and it's interesting that um uh, I, another article came across earlier where uh, a woman was talking about it, it it's not up to people of color to explain the struggle or the reason that they feel the way that they do um white folks have the internet and <laughs> you can go and and do your own fact-finding in your own research to try to better understand. And if we, I'll say, and if we have the opportunity to enlighten, it's in alignment with what we all want for us to do that. So I, I get, I give both sides of that thing. At the end of the day, right now, what I'm thinking about is relationships and bridge building. I have to say that chanting for people whose work or lives that I don't appreciate has helped me build empathy, you know, as colonial of a finger, as we can point at Queen Elizabeth, for example, she's she's on on my list. You know, when I when I do my gongyo every morning and, and evening, I think mm. just helping see the humanity in a person and the potential in a person is what's going to get us a little 
further. So, you know, in it, I, I guess to wrap it up, if there's someone in your life who is really challenging to you, someone who you just want to push off a cliff, maybe try and challenge yourself to be their friend toward gaining a relationship with them that can lead to dialogue that will get them to change their minds about the things that make you want to push push them off a cliff. So now, you know, not only do you have a new friend or at least a new person that you can dialogue with, you have a changed mind. How about that? How, how How's that for being hopeful <laughs> these days? A little Pollyanna. I, I think that we could use a dose of it. Yeah, sure. I, I, I think there's something there because we see lived, lived realities of it, you know, as we were, you know, just, just talking about what Daryl yeah. Davis Lane Foreman. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much, everyone, for sticking with us this week. I know this one ran a little long. Scott, I hope you feel better next week. And yeah, I'm sorry. Sorry about that. Yeah, but no worries. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We'll see y'all next week. Mm-hmm.